and we'll adapt here. All right, I'm going to ask you to find the book of Daniel in your Bible. We have the wonderful opportunity to come together around this book. And uh, some weeks ago, I shared with you that uh, as we began thinking about our fall series, the elders and I uh, began talking about where we wanted to go, what we felt the church needed. And unbeknownst to me, we were also talking about what I needed, especially. And so the book of Daniel is where we landed, and I am so excited about what I've been learning in this book, and I can't wait to share some of that with you along the way. Last, uh, when we first opened our Bible to the book of Daniel, you might remember we started in chapter 9, and hardly anybody starts a series in chapter 9 of anything. So we ended up looking at a prayer that Daniel prayed, and one of the main ideas behind that sermon is that when you live in a culture like the one Daniel lived in, when you live in a modern-day Babylon, you need what Daniel had. And what Daniel had was wisdom from above. And if you remember from our journey through James, James in chapter 1 says, if you lack wisdom, if any man lack wisdom, let him do what? Let him ask of God who gives that wisdom without fail and without any, uh, any hesitation. In other words, God is not stingy when it comes to, to wisdom, and He will not be upset with us when we come to ask. And so as Daniel lived his entire life in a pagan culture, he needed wisdom. And we're going to find out that he got it. And he got it because he asked God for it. So our first sermon together was a sermon on Daniel's prayer life. And then the next week, uh, Mark Vows preached um, while I was away, and then we looked at Daniel's life. What was Daniel's life like? And we noted that Daniel's life was a life of faithful living. He, was, he figured out, by God's help, with the wisdom that God gave him, how to live faithfully in a culture like Babylon. He figured out how to live obediently and courageously and graciously as God's man in that kingdom. And so we looked at Daniel's prayer, and then we looked at Daniel's life. And then today, I want us to do a little survey of Daniel's book. What did Daniel write under inspiration? Daniel's prayer, Daniel's life, and then Daniel's words. And so, as we look at the book of Daniel, these 12 chapters have been of great interest to the church over the years. In fact, as I've got into the different commentaries that talk about this book, it's very, very clear to me that everybody would acknowledge that Daniel is probably one of the most interesting books in the Old Testament, one of the most written about books in the Old Testament, and it is certainly one of the most Uh, divisive books in the Old Testament. Many, many of God's people have come to form very, very different opinions about what's in this book, and uh, they hold those opinions very, very strongly. And instead of the book being something that strengthens the church and unifies the church, it actually, in some cases, has been what divides the church. And I certainly hope that is not true. The book of Daniel covers 70-plus years of history. And Daniel lived through every one of those years. It speaks about three distinct kingdoms. 
the kingdom of Israel that's in captivity, the kingdom of Babylon that is in ascendancy, and by the end of Daniel's life, that kingdom has been tumbled down by the kingdoms or by a kingdom called Media Persia. So three great kingdoms. There are five Babylonian kings that we encounter uh, along the way. There is Nebuchadnezzar, and then Nebuchadnezzar had three sons. And the first two of his sons ruled very briefly, and then the third of his sons, a king named Nabonidus, came to the throne. So he is the fourth king of Babylon, and Nabonidus had a son, and we meet that son in Daniel chapter 5. His name is Belshazzar. And so we're going we're gonna to read about a 70-year history involving three different kingdoms and five Babylonian kings, and then we're going to meet two Persian kings. We're going to meet Darius the Mede, and we're going to meet Cyrus the Great in chapter 10, verse 1. As we read through the book, we are going to find two great dreams that are given by God to a pagan king. There are four massive visions that are given to the prophet Daniel. And in the middle of all of this, in the middle of these 70 years and these three kingdoms and these five kings and then these two additional kings that come on the scene and these dreams and these visions, in the middle of all of this is one man and his three friends, Daniel. And this book is their story. Now, as we go through a book like Daniel, can I, can I give you a little illustration that really kind of helped me to kind of get my head around some of this? Um, you know, there are two kinds of trips that you can take. And so I want you to think about, if you've been on a long trip, how you prepare your family to go on a trip. So my wife and I, a couple of years ago, drove from Las Vegas, Nevada to McAllen, Texas, where I grew up. That is about a 1,500-mile journey. It is a 21-hour drive without stops. No, we didn't do it without stops. But it is through some of the longest, emptiest, most boring terrain God ever created on the planet. There's really nothing to see for hours except desert and sagebrush and every once in a while an occasional steer. And every, for those of you who don't know what a steer is, it's a form of a cow. Uh, city dwellers. So every once in a while you see a steer or a cactus, and then all of a sudden you come up on a town or a, a, a big town or maybe it's just a little town where you can buy gas, you can make a pit stop, you can get out and stretch, you can buy something to eat and drink for the journey. There's almost nothing to distract you along the way, and your entire focus is on your destination. I want to get to McAllen, Texas, and there's nothing that's going to get me off track, all right? That's journey number one. Journey number two would be you getting in your car and driving from Greenville, South Carolina to New York City. That's a thousand mile journey. That's 15 hours of driving, but it's a very different kind of trip. You are going to see a lot of things along the way. In almost every state, there are going to be cities that will attract you. There will be places to stay. And you may end up being so distracted by the trip and by what you see along the way that by the time you get to New York, you have no time really to spend there to do the thing you wanted to do, and you just got to hurry and turn around and get back. 
And I'm going to suggest to you that the book of Daniel is like that second trip. Almost every chapter contains a trail that leads to somewhere interesting. Chapter 1 leads us to a wonderful story about three boy about four Hebrew young men and they are they are in the middle of the king's palace making a request. In chapter 2, there is an amazing dream. And when you start understanding the dream, there's lots of trails to go down. In, in, in chapter 4, uh, or in chapter 3, rather, there is this massive image, and everybody's out there bowing down. And there are three Hebrew men there, and they end up in a furnace, and everybody wants to know, where was Daniel in the middle of all of that? And, and all of a sudden, their minds are, Daniel wasn't there. Did Daniel compromise? Well, of course not. Well, he must have been on a trip. What kind of a trip? Where would he go? And so there are all kinds of little trails, and that's just in the first six chapters. When you get into chapters 7 through 12, I mean, it's stunning. You have a great image, and you've got all kinds of animals represented in that image. And then, of all things, there are ten toes. What are we going to do with the ten toes? Pastor, I know. I know exactly what the ten toes are. Somebody might say, not only do I know what the ten toes are, I know what the toenails on those toes are. And so there are just a lot of trails that we can go down. And what I'm hoping to do as we go through the book of Daniel is to keep something in mind so that we don't lose sight of the main thing God is doing in giving us this book. And that's why we need a roadmap. There are four important landmarks I want to give you as we think about this book. And the first of them is in Daniel chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. So you turn there while I talk for just a minute. I want to give you landmark number one, landmark number one that will keep us safe on the journey and unified as a congregation along the way is when we understand the nature of this book. What kind of a book did Daniel write? Is it a storybook? Is it a book of poems? Is it uh, a, a historical uh, record? Is it like the book of Deuteronomy? What kind of book are we actually looking at? Daniel first wrote the book probably sometime around 539 B.C. So this book has been around for a long time. Now, look at verse 17, and, and we'll notice uh, how to uncover what kind of a book. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. I want you to underline that word. And Daniel had understanding. I want you to underline that word. in all visions and dreams. And at the end of time, when the king commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom, there's our word again, and understanding, there's our other word, about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. You know, when you and I think about the book of Daniel, we immediately think, oh, this is a book of prophecies. 
And it is true that the book of Daniel contains prophecies. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 24 is going to argue with those that he's hearing, and he's going to refer to the prophet Daniel and to something that Daniel saw. So we're not mistaken when we think about Daniel as a prophet and and really as writing a book that contains prophecies. But I'm going to suggest to you that that's not the primary nature of the book. It is a book that contains uh, prophecies that are to inform and assure God's people about the future. But that's not its primary nature. Another way of thinking about the book is that it functions as apocalyptic literature. What in the world is apocalyptic literature? Designed to encourage and strengthen God's people in distressing times. Well, apocalyptic literature is a term that is unfamiliar to most of us. We, we think about that term and, and we, we hear it in terms where something epic is being described, something larger than light, something catastrophic. And all of a sudden, you see something horrible coming and, and the person bringing all of that opposition, bringing all of that horror is a larger than life person and sometimes described in, in non-human terms. And the point of apocalyptic literature in our day and age is to show you the the incredible epic nature of what is happening. Sometimes apocalyptic uh, uh, venues like movies and books are intended to scare you. Uh, And and so, for example, uh, when you read or, or you see movies like The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, it's intended to bring terror to you. But apocalyptic literature in the Bible has a very different function. It is written to God's people who are living under severe persecution and incredible opposition by very powerful enemies that are in charge. And their story, their situation, is written in larger-than-life terms to encourage God's people living in those conditions to remain faithful to hang on, to continue to wait with hope because God will surely defeat their oppressors, deliver His people, and vindicate their cause. And often, apocalyptic literature in the Bible is written cryptically so that only the people who were intended to receive that encouragement would understand. There are only two apocalyptic books in our Bible. One of them is Daniel and the other is Revelation, and they're linked together. We'll see that when we get to the end of the book. So Daniel certainly has an apocalyptic function to encourage and strengthen God's people in distressing times. But I'm going to argue that as as much as there is a prophetic function and an apocalyptic function, the main function in the book of Daniel is wisdom. Daniel is actually a wisdom book. It's interesting that in our Bibles, The book of Daniel is put among the prophets, but in the Hebrew Bible, it's put among the writings. It's included with the wisdom writings. And I'm going to argue that Daniel is a wisdom book. He is imparting wisdom to our life. He's answering large questions that God's people have when they live in a place like Babylon. How do we live faithfully and obediently and graciously in this kind of a culture? How do we navigate carefully and thoughtfully our responsibility to obey God 
and to serve the king. How do we do that? How do we keep those two in balance? What theological hills are we willing to die on as we live and serve in this pagan culture? And let me give you a little hint. In the book, there are only three. Daniel decided, along with his friends, that he would not eat food offered to idols. He was willing to take a pagan name. He was willing to study pagan literature. He was willing to serve in a pagan court. But he wasn't willing to eat food offered to idols. That's chapter 1. He and his friends were not willing to bow down and worship an idol. That's chapter 3. And he was not willing to pray to anybody other than God. That's chapter 6. Where did Daniel get the wisdom to do that? Where do we go for answers to impossible life-threatening questions that we're called upon to answer? Daniel, if you don't give me the interpretation of the dream, then you're going to join all the other wise men, and I'm going to execute you like I'm going to execute them for not being able to give me an answer. Where do I go for an answer in a life-threatening situation like that? How do I deal with the people that I came to Babylon with, fellow Jews, who think I'm a traitor? They live here with me, and they're getting the same letter I got from Jeremiah, but they're also getting letters from other prophets that are telling them, no, 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 don't listen to Jeremiah. Don't settle down here. Don't build houses. Don't pray for the welfare of the city because you're not going to be here very long. You're going to be here for two years, and then God is going to tumble down this wicked nation. You're going to grab the temple vessels, and you're headed back to Jerusalem. So don't hang out with the Babylonians. Resist them. And Daniel and his three friends take an entirely different posture. And they're considered traitors to their people. What do you do when you find yourself in a situation like that? How in the world am I going to understand and interpret what I can't comprehend about my future as God's people? How, how do I do that? I need wisdom. And all through the book, there are three places in the book where, where Daniel is presented to you as a man of wisdom. We looked at one in the very beginning. Nebuchadnezzar's evaluation of Daniel is that you are a man of unusual wisdom and understanding. At the end of Daniel's life, in the court of King Belshazzar, the queen mother says to Belshazzar when he's confused and terrorized, by the hand that appeared on the wall, there is a man in your kingdom. You can see this in Daniel chapter 5, verse 10, if you want to turn there. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods lives in the days of your father. Light and understanding, there's our word, and wisdom, there's our word, like the wisdom of the gods is in him. So at the beginning of his life, in Nebuchadnezzar's court, Daniel is recognized as a man of wisdom. At the end of his life, the queen mother says to her son Belshazzar, at the end of the Babylonian kingdom, on the last night of Belshazzar's life, there is a man in your kingdom, and he is wise. And then at the very end of the book, in chapter 12, God says to Daniel, you are going to be numbered among the wise. Listen to how he says it in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above and turn many to righteousness like stars forever. 
And then at the end of that little segment in verse 13, go your way, Daniel, you will rest, and then you will stand in your allotted place at the end of the day. In other words, God is looking at Daniel, and he is saying to Daniel, I want you to know something. At the end of time, when all of this that you're trying to understand becomes clear, you are going to be numbered among the wise. You are going to stand with the wise, and you are going to shine like the stars. And Daniel wrote down all of this wisdom in the book that we're studying. So this book isn't a book of prophecy. This book is a book of wisdom. What is its purpose? What is the purpose of a book like Daniel? How is it that a book that has this kind of wisdom and that is designed to strengthen and encourage God's people fails to do so? And I'm going to argue the problem is not with the book. The problem is is not with Babylon or the volatility of the pagan leaders or the enemy uh, and the enmity and hostility around Daniel. The reason that we don't get out of Daniel what Daniel got out of Daniel is because we are not using Daniel for the right purpose. I have a kind of humorous little video clip I want to show you. It's about 30 seconds long, and, and it's the story of a gift that was given, that was horribly misused. And uh, I, I think this is not intended to poke at any of you, but some of us are going to be probably more prone to this in this congregation than others. So let me go ahead and have, uh, it's a 30-second clip. There's no sound. You'll have to kind of look at the, because it's in German. And so I put it, I put the little, uh, little uh, captions on there. All right, now, now some of you can relate to this in a very personal way. Don't, don't raise your hand. But, but I think that's what we do with Daniel. God gave us this incredible book, and, and we do what that older gentleman did. What is the purpose of Daniel? Well, look at chapter 10, verse 19, and let me show it to you very quickly. God said to Daniel, oh man, or the angel rather, said to Daniel, oh man, greatly loved, fear not. So the first thing that we need to understand is this book was not intended to make us afraid of the future. Peace be with you. This is not intended to divide God's people. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. The purpose of Daniel is not to answer your questions about the future. The purpose of Daniel is to strengthen you so that you know how to live in a pagan culture so that you know how to live faithfully. You know how to live graciously and redemptively, so you know how to live courageously and boldly and confidently and obediently. That's why the book of Daniel is in our Bible. It does give us information about the future. There's no question about that. But its primary purpose is to strengthen us so that we live redemptively today in light of that future tomorrow. And, and so that brings us really to the third landmark, and that is this. What is the theme of the book? How does the book actually do this? 
what is its theme and its arrangement? And, and really, the theme and the arrangement of the book are very simple. The theme of the book is in chapter 1. So if you think about chapter 1, it's going to present you the theme. And we're going to look at that in great detail next week. So I'm just going to mention it and move on. But in chapter 1, here's what you find. God rules over the kingdoms of men. He rules over his own kingdom. He rules over the kingdoms of the world. He rules over the kings of the world. And God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign as he rules over the affairs of Israel in their disobedience. He's sovereign as he rules over Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and the kingdoms that are coming. And he is sovereign as he preserves and promotes his faithful people in the kingdoms of the world. God rules over the kingdoms of the earth. That's the theme. How does it unfold? Well, in chapters 2 through 7, you find six court stories and two visions. And in these visions, there are two kings that are humbled. One king is humbled to the recognition of the glory of God, and the other king is humbled in his, re- in his resistance of God and destroyed. And what you find here is, is, the, is the unfolding. This section is written in Aramaic, which was the, is, was the language of the day. This section was written to the Gentiles and to the kingdoms, and, and the message is that God rules over you. And then chapters 8 through 10 is the Hebrew section, and it's written to God's people. And it's this, God's kingdom matters more. God's kingdom matters more. And while you live in the kingdoms of the world, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar and going all the way to the coming of Jesus in his kingdom, there are going to be kingdoms on the earth that are going to resist you and they're going to oppose you, and God's kingdom matters more. It doesn't matter how high those kingdoms are or how powerful they are or how wealthy they are or how wicked they are. God's kingdom matters more. And in the middle of all of those kingdoms are God's people who are being ruthlessly resisted and persecuted and oppressed. And God is saying to those people, I am going to protect you. I'm going to preserve you. I'm going to promote you. I'm going to use you in those kingdoms until Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom and vindicates you. His kingdom matters more. And that brings me to the final landmark. And the final landmark is very simple. It's the message of the book. And the message of the book is an incredible message. It's found in Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. And I'd actually like you to turn there in your Bible, if you could, as we close. And while you're turning, let me just remind you that we've been listening in in chapter 9 on Daniel praying. Here's Daniel at the end of his life. He's been reading God's Word. He's been reading Jeremiah. Seven years of captivity. God, I don't understand it. Nebuchadnezzar is gone. Nebuchadnezzar's three sons are gone. Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, just departed, and we're supposed to be going home, and now you bring Darius in? And Darius just told me I have a new office, and I'm supposed to show up on Monday. I'm supposed to be some satrap guy in his, in his kingdom, and, and God, we're supposed to be packing our bags to go back to Jerusalem. And God has four things to say to his prophet. In verse 23, you are greatly loved. Daniel, no matter what happens, you're greatly loved. 
Number two, you, your prayers are being heard and answered. In verse 23, at the beginning, your pleas for mercy, a word went out. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 12, your words have been heard, and I've come because of your words. Daniel, you're greatly loved. Your prayers are being heard and answered. And then this angel, who's three weeks late, Gabriel comes sort of dragging in to give this message to Daniel, and he says something else. He says, Daniel, there's great opposition. There's great spiritual opposition. You see this in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And I wouldn't have been here if Michael, the prince of your people, hadn't stood with me. It's talking about angelic warfare. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 20, I now return to fight against the prince of Persia. Daniel, there's great opposition, but there's also amazing strength and sustaining grace. There's amazing strength and sustaining grace. And Daniel acknowledges this in Daniel chapter 10, verses 15 through 19 and verse 16. Lord, I have no strength because of what I'm seeing. In verse 17, how in the world can I even talk to you because I have no strength, I have no breath. And the angel says, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And the things the angel spoke are in the book of Daniel. That's why I say the purpose of the book of Daniel is to strengthen us when we have no strength. And the angel is going to explain to Daniel, Daniel, you thought that 70 years was going to be it, but if you go back and you read Leviticus 26, you're going to remember that God said if his people under judgment would not repent, then he would increase their punishment sevenfold. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Daniel. The majority of God's people in Babylon would not submit to God, and so God extends their punishment sevenfold. Seventy times seven. And there are all of these numbers that you see in the last part of the book of Daniel, and they all go back to Leviticus 26 to help Daniel and to help us know that God is very, very careful to keep his promises both to judge and to deliver. Because at the end of all of that, God's kingdom wins and God's people are preserved. And that's true in our lives. You know, here we are in our own modern-day Babylon, and some of us wonder, God, what in the world are you doing? We have been praying and praying and praying. We've been praying for our elections. We've been praying for our officials. We've been praying about the budget uh, of our nation. We've been praying, and you don't seem to be hearing our prayers. In fact, it just gets worse. And then we wake up one morning, and, and, and the land that you care about, Israel, that we've been praying about and praying for and going to is under attack, and, and all of these missiles are being fired, and, and this whole thing is just blowing up. And you don't seem to be appearing. I don't understand. I, I am I'm 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 breathless. I, I, I don't have any strength left in me, and I'm supposed to get up tomorrow morning and go do more of it while you seem remarkably absent and unbearably silent in the middle of all of this. And God, this is serious stuff we're talking about. This is gonna affect my life. 
It's going to affect your missionaries. It's going to affect your church. It's going to affect my kids and my grandkids. And the more I pray, the less I understand. The more I talk, the more silent you become. And you are not showing up. This was supposed to be done. You said if your people would humble themselves. You said if your people would bow themselves before you and seek your face and turn from their wicked ways, that you would hear from heaven. And that's what we've been doing for decades as Christians, and you haven't done anything. Now, can I just say, we never talk out loud like that, but we think that way in our heart, don't we? That was Daniel. I just gave you a modern version of Daniel. There are a lot of Daniels in this room. And God is saying to you, fear not. Be of good courage. Be strengthened. I am hearing your prayers. I do love you. And yes, there's great opposition. But trust me, at the end, when you see everything, you see the three things that I'm doing in your life, but when you see the 10,000 other things I'm doing all around you, you're going to understand my kingdom matters more. My kingdom matters more. And that's what the book of Daniel is there to do. The book of Daniel is not there to answer all of our questions about biblical prophecy. The book of Daniel is not there so we can dissect it out and figure out exactly when Messiah is coming and who this is. The book of Daniel primarily is there to strengthen you so that as you live in the Babylon of your life and in the Babylon of your country and in the Babylon of your culture, you will be like Daniel. You will know that God loves you. You will know that God hears you when you pray. You will know that there is opposition. And you will know that there is amazing grace and sustaining strength. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible book. We have just surveyed it in such a a short and brief fashion. And, And so we have so much to look forward to as we go through the pages of this book. We ask, Lord, that you would work in our lives as you did in Daniel's so that we would be people who have courageous faith, bold words, and a gracious life in the midst of a pagan culture. For your kingdom's sake, amen.